And welcome to Pints and Politics. Pints and Politics is a bi-weekly discussion program of all things political. It's coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, CFFF, Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7 on your FM dial. My name is Bill Templeman. We're on your radio every second Tuesday at 9. In addition to this radio show, Pints and Politics is streamed live from the Trent Radio website. We also have a podcast at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. The podcast of tonight's show will be uploaded by... Uh, tomorrow, 6 p.m. About we we post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our brand new Facebook page, Pints and Politics Podcast. Joining me tonight in the studio is our p- politics panel. First of all, we have journalist and former mayor of Peterborough, Sylvia Sutherland, communications consultant and campaign manager Lauren Hunter, musician and provincial NDP activist Sean Conway, playwright and math teacher Tim Etherington, and writer, editor, and podcaster Donald Fraser. Welcome all. Thank you for coming in. Now, a few weeks ago, I quipped on Twitter that in order to keep up with all the revelations of the then-emerging lab scam debacle, that Pines and Politics would have to become a daily program. Certainly for the politically addicted, this winter has been like a free all-you-can-eat gourmet buffet with open bar included. So many choices, such an abundance of tasty morsels, a veritable feast. Uh, This metaphor of abundance of riches, of course, came crashing down uh, late Thursday night, early Friday morning when we awoke to the grim news of the mosque shootings in New Zealand. The world, especially for those of us who follow politics, has tragically changed yet again. So let's unbundle uh, the lab scam events and a few of the pronouncements of the many protagonists. Let's assess the ongoing destruction of Ontario's political services by Ford Nation. We could also look at the emerging scandal in Alberta concerning Jason uh, Kenney's now disputed victory in the UPC party's uh, 2017 leadership race. We can also talk about the today-declared uh, election race in Alberta. But let's, slaw- uh, let's start with the uh, slaughter of Muslims in Christchurch. As soon as the news of these shootings broke, social media immediately started laying on their infinite political filters. Faith Goldie, possibly the doyen of Canada's Islamophobes, tweeted this pearl on Friday morning. New Zealand attack was an act of evil, and the shooter will rot in hell. May the victims rest in peace. Then, hashtag, not all Muslims, delightful, are to blame for terror, and those who engage in legitimate debate about mass migration and Islam are in no way responsible for this attack. So don't be intimidated into self-censorship. Maxine Bernier, who chose to say nothing, was lambasted for silence. Andrew Scheer issued a condemnation of the attack without using the words Muslim, mosque, or Islam. He issued a second condemnation, this time including the aforementioned unmentionables. Now social media is lighting up with warring posts about putatively ignored slaughters of Christians in Nigeria and gruesome details about the ISIS rampage in the Bataclan Theatre in Paris, November 2015. Presumably the posters are seeking to score propaganda points in a macabre competition as to which faction has been most wronged. So, what? how did social media respond to this tragedy, tragedy and how should it have responded? Tim, um, actually, to be honest, don't. <laughs> I actually, I really don't particularly care how social media responded because I think it's kind of, it's kind of assumed that social media is going to respond. A, a lot of what we're seeing right now, the amplification of uh, white nationalist hatred and terrorism, and we really need to all agree to call it terrorism, has been nurtured and amplified on social media. It has given the means to otherwise disparate. Uh, frustrated, disassociated people to find a certain commonality. You know, we talked about the show and we've all experienced our own life, how we live in our own social media bubble. You know, we post something on Facebook, we think, wow, everyone agrees with me, because of course they're your friends on Facebook, except for the odd, you know, cousin or aunt that you don't agree with. Um, and if you take that and you put it on a global scale and, and you, it works in place in the internet, we're not talking about the dark web. We're talking about Reddit, we're talking about 4chan, we're talking about the gaming community, we're talking about the porn community. And it is in these places where young men are being radicalized. And I'm using that language very, very specifically because we were all hot and bothered 15 years ago about uh, young Muslims being radicalized on the Internet, you know, and watching videos on YouTube. The exact same process is happening with frustrated young white men. 
Uh, it's in Peterborough, our famous little Nazi in Peterborough, uh, had a post in the other day about uh, shooting journalists in the head uh, that the Peterborough police are investigating right now. Uh, so, and this is becoming commonplace. It's happened sort of, uh, you know, it came from the margins. It came into the mainstream very, very quickly. And we need to recognize what it is, and we need to recognize that when we talk about terrorism traditionally, it's a process of othering. If we set it aside from ourselves, we talk about people of other religions, of people of different skin color. But if we're truly going to talk about terrorism as an act of evil and something that threatens our, our, our social order, we have to recognize this as a clear and present danger right now. Donald, did you want to? Oh, I was just going to point out that that you know you don't have to you don't have to look into into very far into into Reddit or places like that when you've got Kevin Goudreau, you know, giving giving uh, descriptions on on, on how. Uh, terrorism should be taking place, and violent terrorism should be taking place. Uh, so, I mean, this this is uh, this is a, a, you know, a Peterborough native on Facebook. Uh, the, the police are looking into that one as well, and it's yeah. Uh, when when it comes to the politicians, that, that's the whole different kettle of fish. Uh, and I think that there, you have to be careful about. The politics that you're that you're bringing into a situation uh, when people have just been killed. Um, I, I think that uh, now is not the time for the but and the but rather let's take a look at, at the fact that uh, you know twenty some odd people were were killed in cold blood and finding a way to stop that. End of sentence. So the fifty people were killed in cold cold blood. In fact. Yeah. And if you want an example, and you may be coming to this later, I don't know, but if you want an example of how it should be dealt with by the politicians, you don't have to look any further than the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if there is a hero in any of the, well, there are many heroes in this, in fact, but she, she is, and there are many who are not heroes, but her behavior from the moment it happened until today has been exemplary. Here's a 37-year-old woman, never elected before. She had never held a seat in the New New Zealand legislature. Elected for the first time as head of the Labour Party two years ago, who has done everything right from the beginning. And among the things she's done is she will not mention the name the name came out of Australia because the, the perpetrator was Australian. It, was, it, was, it did not come from New Zealand. She won't mention the name of the perpetrator in, uh, in any speech, and she's urging New Zealanders not to. And the other thing nobody's commented on, but which is uh, interesting, is all the pictures coming out of New Zealand of the perpetrator. His face is blurred out. And the message there is he's not getting the publicity that he clearly so badly wanted to get, yes. and uh, and even it, 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 and 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 that is reflected in a way in 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 the rest of the media throughout the world. Somebody's not named because the name is there, right? But it, it's played down. But she, if say so I I am so impressed. I mean she uh, she there she went out. She's wearing the hijab. She went to uh, to embrace the, the people who who had. Who had relatives missing, presumably dead? She uh, she has uh, moved right away on gun control, yes. and so has the New Zealand, New Zealand legislature. Is clearly going to go along with it. People are voluntarily there's some opposition, but people are voluntarily turning in their semis in in in, in New Zealand, and there are a lot of leaders in this world. And one to the south of the border, and one and and there's several in Europe and elsewhere who could take a message from how she has behaved. It's, it's been remarkable, really. And uh, and uh, say, here you have this slight 37-year-old young woman who uh, knows how to lead. This is leadership, yes. Yes, it is. Um, now, what about the quotation, those who engage in legitimate debate about mass migration and Islam, do we need to take a harder look at those voices and how much room they have and how much tolerance we have. So I would hop in here and sort of 
mention and tie it back to what we were just talking about. And so we mentioned the name of a known neo-Nazi in Peterborough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't need to be uh, that stark. Uh, so <laughs> there are lots of folks who are yeah. um, trafficking in language that is quite inflammatory. You really only have to go as far as some of the local media Facebook posts mm-hmm. that very day to mm-hmm. see some of the rhetoric that at a might seem like it's at a simmer right now, but if you continue escalating, ends up getting you to the same place that has resulted in this catastrophic violence. And so, in so much as I, I can see the the argument to be made that uh, you know that there are legitimate concerns about these things, but unfortunately for myself at least, any time I follow back an account of someone who is saying something like that, I inevitably find awful, much worse, yes. uh, you know, misogynist, racist, xenophobic stuff. Uh, so it seems to be that those are, um, even if they might be legitimate claims, or are being used to cover uh, what is really xenophobia and racism underneath it all. Yes. Tim. And part of the problem that we, we have in, in addressing this is, is uh, we have difficulty, and I kind of touched on this before, calling it by, by what it really is. And it, there's a much deeper structure in the way that we sort ourselves out in this culture. You know, we in, in, in that that process of othering. We've seen it in the local political scene. You know, we've seen the scrutiny that Mary Monsef has received, as mm-hmm. opposed to Dean Del Mastro. Right. Um, and part of it was it's not just an issue of religion or gender or race. It also has to do with Dean Del Mastro was a person that everybody knew. He had grown up locally and everything like that. So he got credible free reign with the press while he was actually on charges. Um, and uh, it, I was driving home today, and, and I was catching um, uh, talk radio 1010, the Evan Solomon show. And for those of you who know, only know Evan and Solomon, Evan Solomon from CBC News World, you should really listen to Evan Solomon today and what he's turned into. Uh, it, it's all lab scam every day. And just before he had a, a bit with Pierre Paul Vieira about cover up, cover up, cover up, he mentioned how the Justice Committee had turned its attention to studying white nationalism and everything like that. And he said, "What a circle jerk that is." Great. Well, what can be done, I guess, at any level to break this cycle? I mean, are, are we on the train? I don't know that we that we are where or we aren't. You know, we're we're in fifteen, twenty years of the radicalization of young people, mm. and a lot of it you could say stems from the internet, but a lot of it comes from a lack of community that individuals are experiencing, and it's a lack mm. of individuals reaching out and creating community. Uh, you have individuals who are driven to these awful, fascist, horrible places, but where where does that start? Mm. And if it's going to start in your online communities, is it going to start from from paying attention to the agitators and right-wing hate mongers of the world? I don't know what the solution is, but I know that part of the solution is building community for everyone. Sylvia? I I think that's quite profound, actually, Sean. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's I felt for many years now that a, a, a technology that allows us to communicate with the world isolates us from each other. Mm-hmm. And, and that's particularly true, I think, of, of the young people. Mm-hmm. You can, you, you know, it, it is a very isolating technology. And it plays in exactly what you were saying. That's some material. And it's oh. not just an organic process. I mean, it, it might have its, its roots there, but many have figured out how to monetize you know, that sense of outrage, that sense of disassociation, that modern angst or whatever we want to call it, you know, that might be channeled into punk music or rock rebelling or something in the past, which itself was a way of monetizing rebellion. Uh, you now have individuals which have recognized the currency of politics today is outrage and victimhood. And there are people who can organize followings and turn into you know millions of followers on YouTube and make a lot of money on it. I, I'm not going to mention any of the alt-right stars out there, but these are people who have very deliberately seized upon that sense of frustration and isolation and figure out a way to aggrandize themselves and get rich. So we're also dealing with a, a social media or a series of social media algorithms that will feed you whatever is going to piss you off. Um, and, and so, I mean, almost when people, everything these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we're, we're living we're living in a culture of, of rage and outrage. But part of that is uh, is the fact that um, 
Facebook, for instance, knows what's going to make you click, what's going to make you come back, what's going to make you comment. And, and, and most of that is, is based on, you know, primal emotion. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, social media's job is, is, is to anger us, to, to keep us coming back, to keep us fighting. And what's happening is, is a, a, a massive polarization of our culture, uh, the, the, the art of dialogue. One of the things I think that Sylvia and I have, have, have talked offline before about, oh, you know, it's nice to talk, it's nice to argue with you. You're, you're a wonderful yeah. dance partner. But that doesn't happen, that doesn't happen uh, on, Facebook, on Facebook or, or yeah. Twitter, yes. uh, which uh, has been replaced by uh, just, you know, hurling insults, uh, a, a yeah. lack of listening, a lack of reason, lack of debate. And, and when that happens, you end up with this polarization. Uh, and when, when polarization reaches its extremes, you've got, uh, you've got the far right that are, that are, you know, holding on to ideals that are uh, abhorrent, uh, and then you have the far left uh, in in this bubble that is refusing to give up any space to their others on the left, and it, it's it's very 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 difficult to navigate uh, if you don't know the the subtleties and the intricacies of what's being fed to you online. No, that that's very true, and but it, uh, to change the focus a bit, there is a very moving moment in church at All Saints on Sunday. When the pastor, I don't, I think she must have gone in. the The Red Cross has been had a chart with the listings of all the people who were in the mosque that day, and by Sunday they had people saying, "I'm safe," and others who were missing. And much as you have on Holocaust Day here, and have had for some years at at the cenotaph, there there was a re, she read out, just read out with no comment about the names of all the people who were missing and were presumed by that point to have been dead. Mm. And it gave them a face, in a way. It gave them, it, it gave them a human form. Mm -hmm. And just that simple act mm -hmm. was immensely moving. Mm. And sure. you have to realize that, you know, these... Yeah. Anyway, sure. I, I think, um, I would hope that uh, this tragedy would be a wake-up call for the radicalization of youth as if the hundreds of mass casualty situations that have happened over the years have not been and we can be we can hope to be optimistic about changing the way that we look at these things i think that prime minister uh, yacinda arden has been amazing mm. through this entire process how does it translate to radicalization here in Canada? I think one of the things we have to look at is the fact that these online and social media platforms are completely deregulated. Mm -hmm. Yes. One of the biggest things moving forward, inter the Internet's not going away. No. None of this is going away. <laughs> the thing we have to do is how is social media going to interact with the society of the future? It must be reg regulated. It, people must be responsible for the things that they say. Mm. That's the nature of free speech in Canada. You're responsible for what you put out. How do you make them? That's where I'm. I'm not. Uh, I'm not proposing yeah. a change. I don't know. I don't yeah. know uh, how we would do that. But I know that something needs to change. I I think some of it might happen organically. Um, people are more and more people are realizing that that social media is an addiction. Um, that uh, that the, that the behavior when you consume this product can lead to really terrible social behavior. Uh, do, does this remind you of anything? Uh, and, and and I'm I'm hoping and, and I'm I'm hoping that I'm prescient in saying that I think people are going to society is going to look at social media in in five years and ten years from now and realize, oh, yeah, we, we got to do something about this because we're out of control. And, and so I'm, I'm hoping this happens organically before it's too late. Of course, in the old days, we would write letters to the editor. And someone with a uh, sharp eye would edit those letters, and they would be published or not. I can't remember the last time I've written a letter to the editor because I can write well, every day. I have day. a friend who writes all the time. <laughs> yeah, and that's good. And she's quite controversial. Please. 
I was just going to say in terms of regulation or whether this will happen organically, uh, it's interesting because there's been very minor moves, I'd say, by the Canadian government to talk to some of these social media giants, Facebook and Twitter, about what they'll do uh, in terms of foreign interference in the next Canadian election. Right. And even that has been met with uh, quite a bit of disinformation mm -hmm. and pushback and free speech. And so there's a taste here of what the obstacles will be moving beyond an election into sort of the broader sense of regulation. Uh, and just how challenging that will be if there isn't something organic that is sort of coming from the grassroots up demanding this uh, rather than just government trying to well, regulate. Well, who do, who do they answer to? I mean, they're, they're multinational corporations that exist outside of borders. And, you know, so so it's, it's going to take a global effort in order to uh, – Tim disagrees with me. I'm going to let him jump ahead. But it's, it's, it's a problem that is unlike anything we've faced before, um, unlike a, uh, you know, a, a, a television station or, a, you know, a, this, this is it's – like, it's like a global utility. And that's how do you how do you regulate that? It's uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen much change uh, in in a very prescribed or planned way. And I mean, if we want to get really deep about it, um, <laughs> changes changes in in, in communication deep. technology have usually led to decades or centuries of social strife, if you look at the printing press. Right, you know, right. Led yeah. the Protestant Reformation and the yeah. religious wars for 200 years. Right, if you right. look at yeah. uh, the advent of radio right. and, and how that led to early uh, 20th century fascism. Right. And then, of course, what the, the Germans were able to do with, 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 with um, film and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, there are some ways to regulate it. You know, in Germany, it is illegal to have any reference to Hitler or the Nazis. And so the Facebook algorithms in German Facebook uh, filter all that out. Um, so th there are some tools out there, but we're talking about Facebook, we're talking about Twitter, we're not talking about the message boards out there or the discourse that goes on in the gaming community. And I know I bring that up every show, but it's something that people really have to start paying attention to, is the discourse that goes on in the gaming community, the porn community, the YouTube community. This is actually where teenagers are going. They're not going to Facebook or Twitter. Yes. Yes. You know, this is where they're actually communicating, talking to people. And not that every single time they do it, there's something wrong with it, right. but it's not a benign medium. And it allows a very uh, young group of people to fall under the sway of some pretty radical ideas. I first caught on this last year when a, a very nice, smart guy in my grade 9 math class posted, it's okay to be white posters in my room, in my diverse classroom. And he could not understand why it made me upset. And on that note, sh should we... Uh, I made the remark uh, before uh, off mic that uh, this could be a 10-hour program, and uh, I think I was lowballing it. Do we want to move on to lab scam at this point? We better move on. We better move on. Can we just please? Can we just stop calling it something that was coined by a man who refers to himself as the Prince of Darkness? <laughs> all right. We got to come up with a better it's name. A good point. All right. All right. Can we, can we recognize at least first of all that we can get into this and and you know the the liberals did mess up here right and they're taking some shots over it but the hysterical coverage and let's recognize some agency in this let's recognize Warren Kinsella's hand in this. I know, because this is not the first scandal he's tried to amplify and gin up right. against Trudeau. This has been his, his raison d'etre since, yeah. since Trudeau came in. It doesn't mean there are not bad things going on here. It doesn't mean that Wilson yeah. Rabel doesn't have a legitimate concern about the way she was treated. I'm not brushing it all aside. But it's become a meta-narrative now and recognizing this completely over-the-top response to it. Um, it shows you, one, how conservative the Canadian media is, how much certain figures in the Canadian media really personally hate Justin Trudeau. Um, I saw something yesterday when um, uh, it was uh, the appointment of uh, Annie McClellan. Mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, unfortunately, I, both political parties tried to smear her reputation, which I thought was really kind of unfair. Right. <laughs> Trying to uh, link her up to the sponsorship scandal in mm -hmm. Quebec, although she was an MP from Alberta. Yes. But, uh, the, but what I also noticed on Twitter for about an hour and a half was seven trends were all related to it. Mm -hmm. So someone was paying for that. Right, right. Now, uh, Rosemary Ganley, in her March 13th Examiner article entitled The Women, the Choices, and the Damage, Agents of Disturbance, Wilson, uh, Raybould, uh, Philpott were in the wrong. 
the subtitle, gave, uh, gave us a su- surprisingly muscular critique uh, of the whole affair. Uh, and, uh, well, I've got a, a bit of a quote here. They made public charges, expressed their loss of confidence in the Prime Minister, and, in my opinion, gravely wounded their party, their ministries, and this government. Worse, their actions have carelessly put at risk the progress made for women, reconciliation with Indigenous people, and Canadian families. Progress they themselves greatly contributed to win an office. In in Wilson-Raybould, I see a deep sense of grievance and annoyance, followed by short-term thinking marked by naivete about how politics works. As Rick Salutin said in The Star, this is about feminism and indigenous identity, not about criminality. With Philpott, I see a kind of sentimental sisterhood at work. Now, I was surprised when I read this. What are what are your reactions? Uh, well, I think um, it took a lot of courage for Rosemary to, <laughs> to write that column. And there are aspects of it with which I agree. I think it was a well-written column, and mm-hmm. it, I say it took courage. I agree with some of it. I don't agree with the um, saying this is all about or it's hurting feminism and indigenous... What was the quote there? Uh, this, is, this is about feminism and indigenous identity, not about criminality. Well, it's not about criminality, in fact. Right. And, 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 and uh, the former Attorney General pointed out it's not about criminality, as much as some of the media and some of the opposition, as particularly the conservative opposition, would like it to be about criminality. It's not. It's been stated that, you know, that nothing criminal was done. I think it's, it was not well handed, handled by the uh, by the liberals from the beginning they didn't get in front of it and they've been playing catch up ever since mm-hmm. and uh, you know I don't think it's in Justin Trudeau's DNA to be particularly humble <laughs> or, quite frankly and I okay. I support <laughs> Justin Trudeau but I, I think that column it pointed out some very you know mm-hmm. very hard truths yes and and uh, there's been a lot of pushback there's a lot of pushback in letters to the editor in uh, today's examiner uh, against Rosemary, mm-hmm. and uh, I give her full marks for writing that column. And I say I agree with most, but I think there are some I would like to sit down and have a coffee, and I probably will with her, because there are some aspects of that, uh, some of her comments, such as the, the effect on feminism and, uh, and um, First Nations, Indigenous relations, I, that I don't necessarily agree with. And I think there was some naivety, in fact, on the part of both uh, Wilson Raybaud and uh, Phil Pot, and they're great losses, actually, <laughs> to Cabinet. And it's interesting, they're still in caucus, and I suspect will remain in caucus. And we could talk about the, the wisdom of that, but I'd like to get Lauren's view on that. <laughs> Sean, did you well, I'd, I'd like to just jump in and say that uh, the Trudeau government's completely shot themselves in the foot over this entire, entire situation, and they may well have lost the next election. That mm. being said, they missed one very critical opportunity to make everything better. This should not have stayed in the Justice Committee, as you knew mm. the Conservatives are going to make this a circus. Right. Everybody knew that. It should have gone to a public inquiry, and it should have been outside the hands of the MPs it, six weeks ago. Right. This would not be a news item right now. If they wouldn't, the Trudeau brand would not have taken as big a hit as it has if it went to a public inquiry, whether or not that was the proper protocol or not. Right. If you took this entire situation and took it outside the House and let somebody work on this, somebody from... Even Anne McClellan now, but outside. It would be outside of the Justice Committee. And Anne McClellan, I have a lot of respect for, and but I'm not sure that appointing a former Liberal cabinet minister to investigate. Of of course not, but I think if if we were having six weeks ago. No, uh, but anyway. For to be clear, McClellan has not been appointed to look into the scandal, that so-called scandal. She's been appointed to look at uh, really what's one of the central issues here is that we have an attorney general who's also the justice minister or a member of cabinet. And and there has been a lot of, you know, a lot of the coverage of this is focused on Wilson-Raybould as attorney general. And I think that kind of kind of drafts on, you know, the American attorney general, which is supposed to be completely separate from the president. We've seen everything happen with the Trump administration, so on and so on. but the attorney general doesn't really exist as this sort of independent agent. And I wasn't even really aware of this as much as I'm a fan of politics uh, until this. And I think it's actually really good to look at this. I, and I say, I'm not 
sure if a public inquiry would have made everyone behave well. I think we would have just prolonged the circus, but that's that's to be seen. I'd like to throw one thing in here about electoral prospects. I was reading Lisanne Gagnon in La Presse about a week ago, and to the francophone readers, she was trying to explain to them, well, what is going on in the Anglo media right now? You know, why are they canonizing Wilson Raybould? Let, let me try to explain to you what they're talking about in the English press, because the French, re- she was at least assumed she was speaking to an audience that's like, what's going on here? Right. Because they're not in the same echo chamber. Right. So there was a piece there about staying in caucus. So, and, and I'll say in reading Rosemary's um, column, what, what struck me in, and again, I would agree with Sylvia, there were things I agreed with and things I did not quite agree with. Um, but what struck me and what I have been sort of puzzling over this whole time, I'm a political person, uh, I'm interested in the politics, doesn't matter what party, and I, I always, I tend to game things out, right? Yes. So if I'm going to take this action, I expect my opponents might do A, B, or C. And if they do A, then I'll do Z. And if they do B, mm. then I'll do this. And on and on and on and on until we get to whatever we think that end game is going to be. And I just don't understand what the end game was for either Jody Wilson-Raybould or for Jane Philpott. Um, to, to resign from cabinet, I understand that. Yeah. But then to stay in caucus and to so quickly say, yes, but we're liberals and we're going to run mm-hmm. again in the next election. And, you know, Jody's been out door knocking and... I, I, so I'm puzzled, and Rosemary's column just continued to make me puzzled. Um, in terms of the question of whether they stay in caucus, I think that's up to caucus. And I think if they're being smart and they've eaten their Wheaties in the morning, they will let them stay in caucus. Yes, yes. Uh, because there's the a... Like Sheila Cops. Well, <laughs> it's a very Whoa. big tent, as uh, you know, Sylvia, and there's yes. room for all sorts of people in the Liberal Party. Um, so there's body language of dismay in the studio over the name I, Sheila Cops. I Sheila Cops era, actually. But in, in in terms of staying in caucus, you know, there's a really interesting thing that happens, I think, in Canadian media and in politics, which is that on the one hand, we want MPs to be independent and we do not yes. want them to toe the party line and we want them to express their disagreements, especially when it goes against the party line. And yet when they do, then it becomes a crisis of confidence for the party. And there's all of this spin that happens on, on the other side of, oh, you can't control caucus and you're losing control. So which do we want? Do we want independent MPs who can speak up against their own party from time to time, like Nathan Erskine-Smith does, like mm-hmm. Wayne Long did through this as well, and we can still welcome them because that's a great part of democracy, is that we can have right. disagreements internally as a family, as a political party, mm-hmm. and we can still come out and go for the same values and have the same policies and be united on that pitch, um, or do we all need to just quietly get in line behind them and, and go back to the, I'd say, the Harper days, where mm-hmm. we didn't hear about those disagreements within caucus. Yeah, I think... Rosemary is right when she used the word naivety. I think, uh, strangely, uh, on the part of both Jane Philpott and uh, Wilson Rabel, political naivety. I think these are two very competent, mm-hmm. capable women, people, but I think there really was, and uh, uh, they were politically naive. And to the point of the Attorney General, uh, Minister of Justice, that came with John A. MacDonald. Like, in Westminster, they are separated, and they're separated for oh. a very good reason. Oh, okay. And it was MacDonald, <laughs> that wily old Scot, who wanted complete control. So that's where it goes back to. And I, I personally think they should be separated. It puts the Minister of Justice in a combined portfolio. It puts the individual sometimes, as we've just seen, in an impossible or virtually impossible position. Sure, go ahead. I was going to just kind of turn yeah. the page a little bit to to just read the bottom half and and maybe get the the sense of how of how the panel feels about the rather abrupt resignation of Michael Wernick. Oh, cheers! Well, all right. <laughs> Tim, step on the ice. Here. Okay, so yeah, he said he was going to do that. <laughs> he basically did in his testimony. He said that you know he wasn't willing to put himself out there. He was a rather faceless, not you know, very successful person. Um, the attempt to spin his resignation as proof of his personal corruption has got to be the most postmodern thing I've read in the last couple of days. Right. Uh, he said that, you know, I want nothing to do with this. I don't want the character assassination. And, and he resigned. I think, I think Butts resigned, too, because 
Butts messed up. I mean, he was, he's in charge of that office, and he let that thing get out of control. He did what a chief of staff should do, not write a six-figure check to a senator. Uh, what he did was, was, was he, he resigned. Uh, listen, I, I don't want to leave it just here as if I'm trying to, to, to cover up for the liberals. They have, a, they, have, they have an issue. No, they have a big issue with their brand, right. is that they've tied it all to Pierre Trudeau. One yes. of, Pierre? Oh, I tied mine to Justin. Pearson, that oh my God! Yeah, that yeah. that horse has left the well, barn. Actually, yeah. you know what? In a deeper level, they are tying it to Pierre Trudeau. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they've tied it too much to Justin Trudeau. Yeah. Um, most governments, you point at them, you say, "What do they do?" Right? What do they do? Right? You know, uh, Brian Mulroney was free trade. Right? Th- yeah. That sort of thing. What is this liberal government except exemplified by the personality of Justin Trudeau? That is a rich target for the opposition yes. to tear down his positives, and this this uh, this. Affair has made it very easy to do. I Sean, just to just to jump in if we're in this in this part of it. Uh, speaking to uh, some folks uh, this week, this whole thing it's it's not the be all and end all, but what it is for a lot of people and like minded people who might vote a little to the left, like myself, who may have lent a vote to the Liberal Party in 2015. Yeah. Right now, this is a cherry on the top. Mm. of expanding oil and gas and subsidizing oil and gas like ne- like we haven't seen in a very long time. A lot of federal investment in uh, oil and gas. We've seen uh, we've seen the RCMP at Wet'suwet'en Camp. We've seen uh, the poor handling of electoral reform by this government. We've seen not a lot. As, as you were saying, and as another thing. thing, and another thing. I can't believe so, that was the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. Yeah, that was yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, anyways, for I think for a lot of people, we see this not necessarily as any rule breaking, as we saw that come out of Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony. Yeah. We saw this. This isn't a huge deal, but it's the cherry on top for a lot of people who are still considering lending right. support to a Trudeau government, yeah. and. It's possible that that's gone. Right. Well, Sylvia. <laughs> back to Wernick. I, I cheered there only because um, <laughs> I, I think his appearances before the committee were, to say the least, most unfortunate. And uh, he almost, I think, had to go after that those performances. Hmm. More to do with personality, I'm afraid, than with perhaps. I, I, I suspect he's carried out his responsibilities professionally. And um, but good for him for for making that that decision. A week is a long time in politics. Now we found out that a day is a long time in politics. The election is not until October, and there may be those. And uh, I remember I was predicting quite confidently last program that Trudeau is certainly going to be leader, and he is going to be. Although there was a moment there when I wondered what was going to happen. But um, you got to look at what the alternatives are. And you have to look at the uh, at uh, the leader of the Conservative Party, and quite frankly, uh, I don't think we're going to have a fair chance to assess the capabilities of the leader of the New Democratic Party. I say that surrounded. I want to get out of here alive, but uh, I would not write for one moment. And I don't say this as a liberal. I say it as a, a political observer. Uh, the, the, uh, the the possibility that uh, that uh, I almost said Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, <laughs> Justin Trudeau will be back as prime minister. One question while we're doing this, and I'll throw it over to you, Donald, is we're talking about this. The other thing that's happening right now that I can't figure out, Sean, maybe have an insight. Why are NDP MPs not running? Why is Nathan Cullen not running? Because particularly in BC, you'd think the NDP would be, and it's Watkins, I believe, the other one. What, yeah. what is going on? So let me... I don't have any information to this. This is me commenting completely as a political observer. (laughs) We've got a a very sort of precarious uh, NDP government in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. Nathan Cullen would be a great MLA in British Columbia. Murray Rankin would be an amazing MLA in Victoria. There are people making the flip over into Ontario or 
<clears throat> into provincial politics, and we're seeing that. And a lot of, and a lot of folks who uh, I think came in with the orange wave, who are even before then, who have been in for a while. Nathan Cullen has been an MP for 15 years. He has two twins who are eight years old who he's not spent a lot of time with. Yeah. I know that he's doing that. But it's it's that time. We've we've still got that number, if not more, liberal MPs not seeking re-election, as well as conservatives. Um, uh, first of all, I, I like to point out that 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 Trent University should that happen, Trent University is essentially taking over uh, the province of BC uh, with with Horgan, uh, with uh, Sheila Malcolmson. Um, so this is this this is pretty funny from a Peterborough perspective. Um, both both Sean and uh, and Sylvia are kind of hedging around the conversation of of partisanship and 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 how this plays into our into our electoral process uh and i i think it's time we 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 keep on seeing this this jump of uh of ndp support to go against whomever there, there there's always the boogeyman there's always there's always the enemy uh we have to we we vote uh we're not voting for we're often voting against um, and, and we take a look at some of the, the politics that are happening right now, um, and it's time to, I think, strip away some of the partisanship because uh, partisanship, in, for the most part in Canada, is, is pretty much guaranteeing a conservative government every electoral cycle or two. It's, it's, the, it's the way it's going to work. Uh, and then, you know, it swings back to the Liberal Party, but take a look at the Liberal Party's track record on, uh, on, on climate change, on uh, we just had uh, had uh, voting reform virtually disappear before our very eyes. Um, on uh, if we take away uh, today's budget um, uh, reconciliation uh, and relationships with with indigenous people, so we keep on talking about that that cherry, you know, that's going to keep that's going to have NDP supporters, you know, propping up the, the Liberal Party. Um, it's I look at this, and, and we're we're in a time of global crisis. We, we've we've seen the climate change argument come up again and again, and we realize that right now, you know, we're we're two decades out from irreparable damage. Well, I, I would I would argue and say that now is the time where absolutely no new oil and gas projects yes. can yes. be done yes. in North America or across the world anymore. Anything that's you can't do it anymore. Yes. We have to get rid of single-use plastics. Yes. We have to move away from gasoline cars. We have to move away from these things right now. That's something we can be for. We're not voting against climate change. We're voting for a new way of living in this world. And the centrist government is not going to do that. No, it won't. Laura. So I, I guess to say, and I'm going to answer the broadside here a bit uh, in terms of what uh, the Liberal Party can offer uh, left-leaning voters, and I think it's true that uh, lots of things, uh, not lots of things, but some of the things that were committed to haven't been seen fully through or didn't happen, uh, and I think that's something we're absolutely going to have to answer for, and I think we're going to have to make a commitment to that progressive base to say, yes, here's where we went wrong, and here's what we are going to do, and here's what we have done, because lift 825,000 Canadians out of poverty is not a small thing to have happen over three years, right? So there are measures, the Canadian Child Benefit, through through Miriam's work as the Minister of Status of Women, she has revolutionized how the Government of Canada treats women's organizations. There's a lot of good that can be put in the window, but there's more work to do, absolutely. And I think that the challenge, I don't want to drill it down to hashtag governing is hard, but this is a big country, uh, and while we here in Ontario can have this conversation about ending oil and gas subsidies and leaving it all on the ground right now, we would be having an entirely different conversation if this was happening in Alberta. And that's not to say that we can't do more, and that's not to say that we can't push, but listen, the, the Liberals came out in that platform in 2015 and said, we're going to do both. We're, it's, it's, it's hard to do, it's not going to be fun, but we're going to have our cake and eat it too on the environment and on energy, and we're going to try to do it all and it's a challenging road to hoe I, I hear both of your your pitches but i think we are implementing a carbon tax a price on pollutions uh across this country which in and of itself is a monumental change from where we've been before I, so I, there's there's a lot to be done still but i think a lot has been done i think there, there's a lot to be there there is a lot to be done still um and uh 
and we have to paint with very, very, very broad strokes on on the issue of climate change. Um, the the saying kind of we're, we're having our cake and eating it too is is probably not the answer to the planet. Um, so, uh, and, and does the NDP is the NDP the option? I don't know, but we we've, we've we've been sitting on this issue for decades. And I would just say I understand that, and I'm not saying that's what's going to be that that's what's going to come out in the next election. I think that's what the pitch was in 2015. And I think it's, it'll be interesting. I think there's been a lot of pressure, uh, rightly so, by climate change uh, organizations, by environmental groups. We're seeing it right here in Peterborough. And I welcome that. The protests across the country, high school students walking out, that's what we need uh, in order to shift the conversation for some of the folks in the other parts of the country who don't see it like that. Right? Okay. Um, if I could visualize someone who's chortling away off mic listening to the program it would be Doug Ford because he's saying ah they're going to let me slip out without a comment so could we switch to Mr. Ford I would like like to announce all right uh, please Sylvia and and I have found one thing I approve oh did you tell (laughs) I I just want the room to be startled for a moment okay yeah the return to basic math that's my maybe maybe we'll let the teacher handle this one but Oh no no! I I all I do is talk about Doug Ford. I got a lot of that. Okay, so I I actually I actually agree with Sylvia. <laughs> all right. No 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 no. I'll, I'll, I'll say what. But here's the problem. Here's the problem is that a lot of what the Ford government does because they had no policy and because what they announce is not what they're intending to do. They're trying to line the pockets of their friends. Yeah. Right. Uh, this is the most corrupt government in the history of Ontario. What has been ignored in the last two days is Randy Hillier quit, wrote a yes. letter to a constituents. Yes. Yes. Item number nine says that the government is corrupt yes. and that lobbyists are, are dictating policy in the province. And that has mm-hmm. been buried under hashtag lab scam for the last two days. Yes. Now, but I will speak to some of the educational changes. It's, it's my business, and I do teach math. So it's true. The, the, in pedagogy, there's always going to be experiments. Uh, I, I went to school in the 70s. I was taught yeah. by hippies as a little kid, right? Every year there was a different way of teaching us. And the reason, the, the rationale behind discovery math, and anybody who knows me who's listening out there knows how much I hate discovery math in its purest form. Um, but the rationale behind it is that when you teach mathematics, you can teach it just as uh, in a silo, right? Here's a series of operations, memorize them, know how to do them if they're in the exact same context that they're presented to you in a nice little test format. Uh, Beneath that is the conceptual understanding of what these operations do, the ability to take these operations and concepts and transpose them into other situations. That was what the gesture behind Discovery Math was about, a focus on problem solving. So we need to maintain this idea of problem solving. Um, when I teach classes, they get most excited, particularly, you know, college-level courses, right, in grade 12. These are people generally not going to university. When I teach them uh, basic finance, when I teach them how to figure out how much paint you have to put on an engine part by using trigonometry, you know, that's the stuff they really like. And so I, this year in particular, I'm teaching my grade 12 course. I'm saying, you guys have been learning math for 12 years, and you're probably not going to take it on the math course, so I'm going to teach you now how to use what you've learned. So hmm. there's that. Now, I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to dominate, but I've got to say a couple things about this, about the education changes. First of all, these are all back-of-the-envelope things. They're, they're trial balloons. They're going to see how much protest there is. But a couple of facts I'd like to put out there. When they talk about raising class averages, in high school they say the average is 22. People need to understand that's the average. And when you have uh, specialized tech courses, when you have um, um, special ed courses, uh, CASA programs, they have very, very low classes. And they balance out the average class size most semesters. This semester I actually have a low load. I have 75 students over three classes. That's low. Usually it's a little over 80. And most high school teachers are like that. They teach about 27, 28 per class. They want to increase the average by a little over 25%. So that means the class that I teach in the morning now, 29 grade nines, would be about 36 kids Whoa. if that happened. There's a few other things that are going on that haven't been noticed. The e-learning initiative, where they want to turn it over yeah. into one course a year, yeah. into e-learning. Uh, and the other thing is uh, there's something called the local um, uh, uh, project fund, which uh, set up by my union, OECTA, which hired 335 teachers to teach spec ed, to teach at-risk students, to teach indigenous services. They just found out two days ago the funding's been cut from that, and all those programs are canceled. My, my, my huge hope here is that, uh, that this is... Uh, 
like Article 10 in Bill 66, that uh, that it's going to be so seen as so repugnant that that Ford's going to have to do something about, about repealing and pulling back. Uh, it's strange to go on social media, to go on Twitter, of all places, and not see one person agreeing with the educational changes that, that Doug Ford is bringing forward. That's, that is unheard of. When, there, when there's solidarity on Twitter, that, that, that says a lot. That sure um, doesn't apply to math. I spent some time today talking to a couple of educators out of OSSTF, and uh, a lot of the concern right now is that teachers in Ontario do not have the infrastructure or resources to provide Mm -hmm. e-learning. That's going to be privatized and farmed out, and it's going to be set up from the same same sort of folks that are doing EQUAO, which should be gone. Uh, And, you know, even certain MPPs who have a background in designing software for education programs are going to be making a lot of money when they get voted out of office next term. Yes. And uh, uh, Dave Smith. Well, Dave Smith made the declaration that, well, you know, I took my MBA online. Anyone can buy an MBA. Excuse me. When you took your MBA, you you were probably in your 30s. Uh, We're not, it's it's different. And like Tim, uh, I've taught school. You're not dealing with 13, 14 year olds here. He got his MBA from the University of Fredericton, which is like the University of Athabasca. It's one of these new online universities. It is accredited. There's been a lot of controversy around them. You pay about $17,000, you do some online modules, and you get an MBA. I I literally (laughs) cede the mic. I will stop talking, but one other thing listeners need to know is that every single teacher is being told right now to start saving money, make sure you have at least one mortgage payment in the bank. Yes. Um, All the contracts come up at the end of the summer. Right. Okay, we've got five minutes left, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, another another province, Alberta, and another name, Jason Kenney. Uh, what is going on? And, of course, we have the election announced today. Is this the uh, the angel of electoral salvation that Rachel Notley has been praying for? I think uh, if you want to just look at sort of the trends that are happening in Alberta, that regardless of what uh, the UCP and Jason Kenney have been able to throw at Rachel Notley, she is still her personal mm-hmm. likability yes. is much higher than the UCP, much higher than Jason Kenney, and the policies resonate with people more than anything that Jason Kenney can throw at them. Jason Kenney is promising to go into Alberta with an axe and destroy the place. There's been a lot of measured approaches from Rachel Notley's government, who I I really respect Rachel Notley. I disagree on the oil and gas question in Alberta completely, and I'm not afraid to say that, but I would not count the NDP out in Alberta right now. Right. Others on Alberta, I mean, does Rachel Notley have a ghost of a chance. The the common wisdom, the accepted wisdom was, well, you know, she's gone. And yet, I too am hearing these things. Well, yes. again, a week is a day is a long time in yeah. politics. Yeah, yeah. I would not count her out at all. I, I would tend to say that, uh, I mean, every day we seem to be getting another another picture, unfortunate picture of Mr. Kenny. Right. It grows and grows, and that has to affect people in the end, I think. I think uh, the involvement of uh, Stephen Herber uh, in mucking around with uh, what's happening and and his someone from his firm, not him directly, uh, sort of having something to do with the scandal, but then also his message out to conservatives, which was sort of, listen, Gad is here telling them that they all need to get in line and and back one party because that's what worked uh, for the country. The fact that he did that shows me that they're concerned, that they're actually really worried about their chances. I think I think Kenny actually likes the the attitude of I will do whatever it takes to win, and and I think that he's 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 being a cowboy and he's saying you know giddy up let's do this, uh, and he's also he's also been really bulletproof. Jason Kenny can't ride a horse. No, I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> horse. <laughs> right, right, right. All right, and on that note, we are uh, at time. So thank you so much, Sylvia, Lauren, Sean, Tim, and Donald. We are back on uh, April 2nd with a program to be announced. Thank you very much for tuning in. This has been Pines in Politics. We'll see you in two weeks. And this is Bill Templeman.